of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is episode 3303 of the Survival Podcast. It is Wednesday. That means it's interview day, and we have our special guest today, Rebecca Anderson Belanca. And uh, we're going to call her Becca because that's what it says she is called in her uh, application to be on the show. She works for NRCS. Oh, no, not the government. Yes, the government. But of all the organizations that are existing within the United States federal government, NRCS is probably the most helpful and the least uh, damaging of them. And they have some really great programs, honestly. And, and yeah, I'm opposed to stealing money, but I'm not opposed to getting it back. So if you're a small farmer, if you could be considered a small farm, there's actually quite a bit of assistance that NRCS can give. And it's to do things you'd probably want to do anyway, like put up high tunnels, improve your soil. They also do things like free consulting, basically take a look at what you're doing and give you some advice, which you are under no obligation to solve. And they do a lot of other great stuff. And... uh, Becca is one of us. She uh, has her permaculture design course certification, and she actually taught part of a PDC in Houston. She's a certified holistic management international. That's Alan Savory's thing. And she went through the soil food web course and certification under Elaine Ingham. That's about as all natural as it gets right there. And so I was really excited to have her reach out. Uh, to come on and talk about how NRCS specifically can help small farms, people involved in urban agriculture and things like that. And and as I always say, it's kind of like a way that you get some of the money that you've had stolen from you back to put to use for something you actually want to do. So with that, before we go ahead and hear from Rebecca, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one is Ridge Wallet. You can find out more about them at Ridge.com. They have been with us about five years now as a sponsor. Uh, They approached me like right after they wrapped up a Kickstarter where they launched their initial product, the Ridge Wallet. They're now a full-on EDC company. They have really cool like like wedding band rings when you don't want to wear like your actual gold ring guys or like silicon ones so like you don't get your finger taken off when working in a machine shop or something like that. They have pens, watches, um, they have great backpacks, backup power stuff. It's just a full EDC company now. Knives, everything. It's awesome. And if you are an MSB member, you get 10% off all purchases at Ridge.com. Just log into your members area before you uh, shop to get the discount code. Next up today is JM Bullion. With JM Bullion, you can stack silver and gold at great prices with free shipping from the company that sponsored the podcast that you've listened to, you know, maybe some of you 10, 11, 12 years. Well, that's how long they've been around. They have been sponsoring us for 12 freaking years now. That is a lifetime in the world of podcasting. That's the majority of the time. TSP is only 15 years old. It's almost since we hatched from an egg. And what I love about Jam Bullion, they have better pricing than the bigger, well-known silver houses like Monix and Atmex. Additionally, I can communicate directly with the president of the company if necessary to work out any issues. I don't have to do that very often. The fact that I can, though, means an awful lot to me, and uh, that's why I'm glad to have had them as a partner for this long. Uh, Check them out today at jambullion.com. Also do a discount for MSB. Let me throw a little plug for MSB in there before we bring Becca on. 
All right, so I yesterday ordered some stuff from one of our CBD suppliers, our CBD cannabis suppliers. Exactly what doesn't matter. Um, obviously, since I ordered it through the mail, totally legal. Anyway, I used the discount code that I got for you guys for that one vendor. I saved a little over 60 bucks. The cost of a membership is 50 Single order. Now, this is high-priced stuff, and I ordered quite a bit, so I don't have to do it very often. Um, but still, like if you look at what we have for discounts on stuff like that, uh, on stuff like bulk ammo, if you look at it on stuff like silver and gold from Jam Bullion, etc. What I said yesterday when I tweeted about that, actually I put it on Nostra, I didn't tweet it, um, was that if you use, I sell a product that if you use it doesn't cost you anything, it makes you money. And so if you've never become an MSB member in the past or you've let your membership expire, please take a look at it today. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, or just go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members, and uh, just take a look at all of the discounts you get, all the extra benefits, and then realize you're supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. With that, let's go ahead and drop into the live feed with Becca from NRCS. And we are live. I want to welcome our uh, special guest, Rebecca Anderson Belanca. Hopefully, I said the last name right, but AKA Becca. Welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I've glad listened to, to y'all before, so yeah, I'm glad, is... to, I'm glad to have you. Um, I, d- during my intro that you weren't here for, I, I mentioned yes, she's from the government, but she's probably from the best organization that the federal <laughs> government has. The one that actually does really cool stuff right uh nrcs and i've had nrcs folks on before and one of our expert council members uh dixie mills who's now like always on the hiking trail that like she was a nrcs agent for a while herself and so we've had some interaction with you guys and i it's it's really actually pretty fascinating some of the things that nrcs is doing um can we start out with though let's let's hear about your background like how, how do you end up working for nrcs that's probably not like when you're in kindergarten and the teacher says, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a cowboy. I want to work for NRCS. Like, what path leads you to even find that career path? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I grew up in Olympia, Washington, and my parents were both in the natural resource world. Um, my mom is a agronomist and pasture specialist, and my dad is a wildlife biologist. And so I was always around people in the different agencies. Um And so when I went to University of Washington in Seattle, um, I started out wanting to be a fish biologist. I quickly figured out that was not for me, you know, working out in the field for like two months a year and then being a lab monkey for the rest of the year. Not so great. So um, I had a little um, I took a break from college, shall we say. And so I took a year and I woofed on farms across the U.S., uh, one in California and then a couple in Kentucky, West Virginia, and Tennessee. Oh, wow. And I loved it. I absolutely adored it. It was amazing, and I was focusing on getting on farms that were regenerative and permaculture-focused and, you know, really doing amazing things out there, and I was just so hooked. And so, you know, I came back, and I was like, oh, my goodness. So I want to either be a farmer or help farmers. And so – You know, I had been around NRCS growing up, and so I got on an internship with NRCS in Texas, actually. And, 
you know, I spent a summer down there and I absolutely adored it. I was doing my first internship in Anson, Texas, which is just north of Abilene. And it was amazing. I, I love Texas. I love Texans and I couldn't wait to come back. And so after I graduated from University of Washington with a major in environmental science and resource management and minors in fisheries and nutrition, I went back down and did another internship in LaGrange, which turned into a permanent job. And, you know, then I worked my way up to being the planner in Liberty County, which, you know, swamplands, deep southeast Texas. Um, And then I was the lead planner in Cameron, Texas, Malum County in central Texas. Um, And so those are different climate types. Those are different climate types. One's you know, you almost don't... edge desert, like desert prairie, and the other one is like you might see some alligators on any given day. Oh, alligators are your friends. Yep. Every single tank has an alligator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Texas is so cool, man. You know, you get yeah. a little bit of everything out there. And don't you, you love know, when you are... meet somebody and you're you're like, where are you from? You go Texas, and I'm like, I know somebody in Texas. You might know them. Here. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> okay. Definitely. My favorite thing about Texans is uh, West Texans say about East Texans, oh, they're different out there. And East Texans say the exact same thing about West Texans. Yeah. It's they're hilarious. Right. <laughs> they are both they're right. They're both right. <laughs> yeah. Um, very cool. Yeah. So I, I like hearing like all the internships and all and like the wolfing and all, because that means you had like practical real world experience where some people come yeah. into this kind of space and like they get a degree in eco science or environmental science or something like that. And then they get straight into a job. And then see, I think the problem with that is NRCS is very much what I would call an edge organization. They are really directly working with farmers and things like that. And if you go talk to a farmer, you don't know like what his day is like. He doesn't have time for you. He really does. Absolutely. You know, not yeah. even tell him about farming anyway. It's like, dude, you got to go. Like I, I, you know, like, I don't have time for this. I will say, like, especially, like, farmers will test you a little bit, and they'll, like, mm-hmm. kind of push against you and see how much you know. And if you come back and you can prove that you are an expert, that you know what you're talking about, they'll put that trust in you, right? But if yeah. if you're unsure or you're like, oh, I don't know, when you hem and haw, or if you give them a fake answer, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. And so, you know, that's what I'm always – especially with like new folks coming on. It's like, you know, you just have to be real with them. If you don't know the answer, tell them you don't know that you'll get the specialist. You know, that's what I'm doing now. I'm now the small farm and urban ag specialist out of Olympia, Washington. And so, you know, that's a brand new position. They just made that up back in December. I applied for it because I was like, oh my goodness, this is what I want to do. You know, we have agronomists, we have foresters, we have range specialists. Um, We got everybody you know we got engineers and so there's always a specialist you can go and ask and get the answer for um and you know you can get the specialist coming out on site visits with you too and so you always have somebody to basically source from for that extra knowledge so yeah that's a good segue into like explaining to people what nrcs is anyway Mm -hmm. we have an audience that if you give them alphabet letters and government they tend to immediately like the ears go up the hackles i know NRCS is a different thing, though. Let's let's kind of talk about what it even is and what it does. 
Yeah, the alphabet soup is always a little bit overwhelming, shall we say. Um, but NRCS stands for the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And so we're a sub agency under USDA, which don't don't everybody log off yet. Um, and we were established in 1935 as the Soil Conservation Service, you know, in response to some farming practices mm-hmm. that resulted in the Dust Bowl. And so we're the government was like, hey, we need an agency to go out and talk with folks who are out farming and ranching and talk about the best methodologies in order to conserve soil and other natural resources. We provide technical and financial assistance to landowners and people leasing land. And we are non-regulatory, meaning that we can't make you do anything on your land that you don't want to do. Enrollment in our programs is fully voluntary. And basically, we work with folks to benefit soil, water, air, plants, and animals, and basically increase conservation on private lands. Very, very cool. And, and like, who who do you guys help? Like, obviously, farmers is a pretty broad answer, and I guess that is the answer, but there's maybe another way to explain that. Yeah. Um, well, honestly, I'd say we help everyone, <laughs> um, you know. We can help farmers, ranchers, backyard gardeners, entities like LLCs or nonprofits. Um, Basically, anybody can come in and ask for that technical assistance. There's no minimum or maximum size for properties. You know, I've been out on lots in inner city Houston. I've also been on, you know, 40,000 acre ranches, right? Um, And so folks don't have to sell any products like produce or meat or timber or whatever in order to get assistance from us. And also assistance is free. I get that question a lot. Like, oh, do you charge to come out? No, we don't. We're a federal agency. And I I think that's actually like there's a lot of people out there that spend a lot of money on consulting services. And you guys offer a, a huge amount of resources in that world. So, it's one, you know, there's things people always say, well, what do I do with my soil? Well, the first thing we might want to do is like know what you have, right? So you have access to labs and things like that, right? So we have access to a lot of things. Um, we can help people find the best uh, soil test kit that they might want to do. We don't have access to the labs directly, but we can point you in the direction you want to go, whether it's through a land-grant university, whether it's getting biological tests done through private labs and kind of seeing what might work best. I just saw free pop up there. Yeah, you know what you Yeah. <laughs> and see, you know, what might work best um, for your system, depending on what you want to do. You know, we we have access to those specialists, like I mentioned earlier, who are a wealth of knowledge when you're trying to figure out what grass or range mix or pollinator mix would work best on this, you know, boggy low ground or on this sandy hill that I have. Because if you want something to, you know, really work and get established the first time around so you're not wasting not only money, but your blood, sweat, and tears, you know, you want somebody to tell you what's going to work the first time, you know, and so yeah. that's what we can do. We also have access to things like, you know, soil maps through Web Soil Survey, which is free to the public. Um, and so we can also show you how to use it, you know, topographic maps. Uh, a lot of counties have LIDAR. And so, you know, we can also go out and help you lay out different 
you know, engineering practices or whatever else out there, even if it's not part of one of our financial assistance programs or whatever, you know, that's all part of the technical assistance. It's helping you out in any way that we can. Yeah, and what are some of those other ways maybe that you, you, you actually provide services? Like I know there's there's some stuff's done with grants, um, but there's also things done with like practices to prevent soil erosion and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, that's where the difference between technical assistance and financial assistance comes in, Okay. right? So the technical assistance side of it is basically, you know, somebody calls in with a concern on their property like, hey, I got this big old head cut forming out in my field. What do I do about it? Or I got some bare ground. What do I do about this weed? I don't even know what this is out here. Um, You know, stuff like that. So calling in NRCS makes a site visit to you. We have a local county planner in every single county in every single state in the country. So there's always somebody there. Um, So they make that site visit out there and they might say, oh, you know, for this head cut, you might want to shape it and reseed it to this, you know, really uh, tough grass that's going to hold your world together. Um, You know, that might be something and they'd advise you on the best way to prep that site and get that grass out there. So it will become established and you won't be dealing with that issue anymore. Um, you know, they'll provide you with a couple different options. Like, you know, I know in Texas, especially, right, you know, head cuts form pretty often given I know that y'all just got a couple of really good storms moving through there. Mm-hmm. So that's going to cause some issues. And so, you know, we might give you an option you could do like staking some hay bales with T-posts into that head cut, which would be a Band-Aid solution or the more permanent solution would be going in there, reworking it, reseeding it, right? Um, and so that's the technical assistance side of it, you know, just basically giving some recommendations. The financial assistance side of it is, you know, if if some of those solutions sound like they might be good for you and you might want to put in an application for some of our bigger financial assistance programs, then we can do that. And so it could be looking at something like EQIP, our Environmental Quality Incentives Program, uh, which is basically more like putting in infrastructure and management practices um, to benefit conservation. And so that could be things like alley cropping, crop rotation, cross fences, brush management, high tunnels, pollinators, um, cover crops, livestock water systems, pasture and range planting, forest farming, riparian buffers. Uh, We have uh, tree and shrub planting. We have a new Uh, interim practice this year, uh, which is soil carbon amendment, which is compost and biochar. You know, there's a little bit of everything in that program. Mm. There really is. And then, you know, our other bigger program is CSP, the Conservation Stewardship Program, which is a financial assistance program that folks usually enroll in once they have a more established management system and they want to do an even better job on their place through doing what are called enhancements, which are similar to practices. And those contracts are five years and offer annual payments. Okay. So usually it goes folks calling in technical assistance by making a site visit, and then people can put in an application for a financial assistance program. It's very cool. And, um, you know, you understand the concept of function stacking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have a permaculture background. So you know what I'm saying as I go into, like, by f- maybe stacking functions, can a farmer, uh, you know, 
basically get more funding by thinking about how to put these things together in a way that makes a lot of sense. Um, so yes. Okay. And so I would say like, you know, if you're already doing some of those things out there, um, part of what we do is we, when we go out and make these site visits with folks is we're taking inventories out there. We're saying, okay, so how good does your pasture look? How, what does your soil health look like? You know, we're making these assessments out there. Mm-hmm. We're also making them on forest land and for wildlife habitat. So we're kind of taking into account, um, you know, what it looks like out there and you can get more points if you're already doing a good job out there. That being said, if you're trying to stack these different functions out there, like you're trying to, you know, you've got your garden or your cropland and you're wanting to put in a hedgerow with all these different canopy layers out there to benefit, you know, not only the wildlife, but also to benefit your crops by cutting down on the wind affecting your quality and quantity of crops that you're getting off. And, you know, you're decreasing erosion by getting all those roots in the ground and you're improving your yield within that hedgerow, right? Because you are getting all those different layers in there. Um, You know, we can look at things like that and alley cropping and, you know, Mm -hmm. combining all all of these different um, permaculture focused practices um, and kind of like giving them the NRCS, you know, title kind of. Yeah, yeah. But, like when I put in my swale, call it a Code 600 agricultural terrace. Right, right. <laughs> and so, exactly. And so it's, it, I like to look at it as translating back and forth between like, you know, Permi language and then like government language, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of what I see my role a lot as because there's so much like miscommunication about a lot of things. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of different practices that we can do like that. And so, you know, civil pasture, agroforestry, hedgerows and alley cropping, yeah. they all kind of serve that same purpose you were talking about, you know, getting those canopy layers out there, yeah. increasing that edge habitat um, and increasing the number of amazing guilds that you have out there. Right. Yeah. And. Um, you know, uh, the compost and biochar, that new interim practice that we have, like, oh, my goodness, that could do so much good for so many permies, you know? Oh, oh my God, yeah. It can be expensive. Yeah. 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 And, and, you it's, know, inc- it's looking at things long-term like long-term-oriented solution, right? I mean, we can, exactly. even organic fertilizer and all, it, you know, you do it, and then you have this duration that it'll actually work for. We start getting carbon in the soil that we can measure in, in millennia versus, you know, years as to how long right. it's going to have an effect. And there's a point where you like I look at biochar and I go, this is a way to like, I guess the way to put it would be get off therapy. Like if you're going yeah. to a therapist for a problem, if you're going to go to that therapist for the rest of your life, he didn't really fix anything. He just made you feel better. If you right. had a good therapist, there should be a point where he's like, I don't need to see you anymore. Right. At least off some of the therapy at some point. Right. And so, you know, I, I kind of like to look at it as, you know, get that initial carbon in the soil through the compost and the biochar and then maybe come back in with like cover crops and, you yeah. know, get some more permanent roots in the ground. Right. And yeah. use those cover crops and green manures in order to fix more carbon. Right. And you can kind of stack other like permi ideas on top of that, like dynamic accumulators, like, Hey, let's include those in the cover crops or the pollinator mixes or the range mixes or the hedgerows. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, 
there are rules to the program, but there's so much like gray area to say, you know, I want to include this. Like, does this work within the system? Right. It's usually kind of from what I've looked at it, like, here's the things you have to do. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things you can add to it. Totally. That you totally. haven't undone the thing that you were required to do. You have to meet the bogey. And like I said, you, you, you kind of put a point like a translator, like use the right words. Um, we were trying to get insurance, for instance, on a farm one time. And one of the partners mm-hmm. in the farm said uh, they couldn't get insurance. I said, why? Well, when they asked what we did, I told them we were a permaculture farm. And I said, tell them we're an organic farm. And they did that. And boom, we had oh, an insurance yeah. policy. Like, they just didn't know Absolutely. how they didn't know what to do. And like the kind of people that make decisions like that don't really make decisions on their own. Like they do what the book says. So right. whether it's an insurance underwriter or a government agent that's behind a desk all day, you need to use their words. Absolutely. And yes. So there's people who are brought up in, I'd, I'd say like maybe the older system where it is like black and white by the book, but I'd say more and more the planners who are coming in now, it's, where people know that you kind of have to look at those gray areas and be like, okay, so this is what they're saying and this is how we can fit it into our programs. Also, I would say an RCS is the most field facing agency I've ever heard of. And I wouldn't want to work for anybody else because, you know, about half the time we're out in the field and we're meeting producers and we're talking about like, Hey, what do you want to do out here? Or we're checking out practices that they have, or, you know, it's super, super awesome. And like, nobody likes the office work, right? We get yeah. into this because we want to go out and we want to be working with people in the field. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Um, can you talk maybe about how then like some of the assistance really does overlap, not just with permaculture practices, but it really sounds like ethics because, any technique, unless we're talking about like, you know, strip mining or something like that, it, it probably could be applied ethically if somebody took the time to think about it. And mm. these are very ethical care of the earth, care of people practices that we've been talking about up till now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, talking about the permaculture ethics, you know, starting off with earth care, like, it's the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And so we are literally out there helping people address concerns related to erosion and pest pressure and animal health and soil and water quality. Um, you know, we're helping people care for their land. And so it's built into the name Natural Resources Conservation yeah. Service. Right. And so that's what we do and how we do it, I guess, is kind of like the people care portion of it. Right. And so we're providing the technical and financial assistance for folks to grow food on their places and, you know, food, forage, fiber and, you know, work for themselves or to employ others in the community, in their businesses. Right. And a lot of what NRCS also does is help to educate folks in the field during our visits, whether it's on grass ID and forage estimations and prescribed grazing plans, or maybe it's species selections for cover crops and hedgerows or recognize, recognizing landscape indicators, right? Like that's a big part of permaculture. It's you're going mm-hmm. out and you're observing what's out there. Observe and, and interact, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's a lot of what we're doing with people in the field during these inventories and these site visits, you know, Oh, what does, this rush mean over there. Oh, you're probably pretty wet, you know, or, yeah. you know, how do you, how do you tell that you're 
in a clay compacted soil, right? And so that's what a lot of our specialists and our planners can do for for people is provide that assistance. And then, you know, in terms of returning the surplus, you know, NRCS is a federal agency, right? And so tax dollars fund our financial assistance programs. And the idea behind taxes is to help the common good. <laughs> like, yeah. um, And so the financial assistance programs are a really beautiful example of this. And so in certain ways, NRCS is a means to return tax dollars to people who are being good stewards of the land and really caring for the earth. Um, and so it's a literal return of the surplus, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I know I've got people in my audience like just chomping at the bit now taxes. I, <laughs> you know, if I had my way, there would be no taxes on anything. It, I know. Step, but they exist. The amount of money that funds NRCS is a rounding error in the federal budget, but it does a hell of a lot more than any. I, I don't know another government agency that I can have as little contempt for as I do for NRCS, honestly, like the amount of good done and the long-term effect of it, you know, I would still hate taxes, but I would hate them a lot less if, if all of our <laughs> tax dollars were used this efficiently with this much future thinking, right? When we improve right. a field, so it stops dumping all its fertility into a river, mm-hmm. like you said, it benefits everybody. It kind of does, and there's certainly people more directly benefited than others, but that is there, there's no person on the planet that's worse off for that. Where I can look at a lot of things, not just our government, but governments in general do, where they think they're helping, but they're not. And there is a negative impact. And there there is no negative impact on reducing soil erosion into the water. Like that's that's a something. If we can't agree on that, I we just might as well quit. <laughs> and we might as well just jump in the ocean and die because we're not gonna ever agree about anything. I want to hear what people in the comments have to say on that one. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure there, yeah. there's like, it, it won't be so much of people that show up for a live stream. It'll be the people that like tonight or tomorrow <laughs> listen to the audio and they'll be typing like just angry typing two finger. You can, totally. you read it and you can hear the keys clacking, <laughs> yeah. but like I, I might've been there before. I'm yeah. an anarcho uh, libertarian and I'm also a mm-hmm. pragmatist, right? Like they right. take my money. I, I actually, one of my favorite authors, and nothing to do with any of this stuff, but just interesting guy, Richard Bach, who wrote mm-hmm. Jonathan Livingston Siegel and Illusions and a bunch of other stuff. I don't even remember the book. It might have been one. But in this, it's he was a pilot, like a small aircraft pilot, and he had this, like, travel through time thing, and he wakes up in the back of a two-seater fighter aircraft, and the guy in front of me realizes it's actually him in, like, an alternate timeline. Oh, and then yeah. he thinks he's going to kill the dude in front of him. And it's like a war game thing. And everybody lands and nobody gets shot down. And he starts talking about it. Like, yeah, but well, this is how we solve our disputes now. Instead of like actually killing people in war, we have war games against each other. And I'm like, I don't yeah. know about that. But then like he was talking about, well, taxes. And the guy goes, oh, we still pay taxes. But mm. the way we pay mm-hmm. taxes now is we get this list of all the government programs. And we allocate what percentage of our individual taxes go to what programs. Oh, that's right? so dope. I'm like, oh my goodness. well, it's not perfect, but it's a lot better. And I yeah. think there'd be a lot of programs and departments that would just go away. And totally. you know, I think it would be things like this that actually, you know, if you're going to make me pay, I want to put my right. money towards something that actually I can, I can look at my kids or my grandchildren and say, your future's better because we did this. 
Because there's Absolutely. so little that I can say that about in government. So go ahead and clack your keyboards, guys. It's okay. <laughs> You're allowed to be angry. Um, anyway, um, where does like the concept of like a whole systems design overlap mm. in allowing NCRS to be involved in a process? Let's say a piece of land I'm managing, right? So I want to look right. at that piece of land myself as a permaculture designer. I know you have holistic management experience. So like if I'm bringing ruminants in, I want to think about it that way. I want to tie the whole thing together. Then I bring these alphabet people on my property to tell me what to do with it. How does that work together? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like you mentioned, I have a background in holistic management training. I have a background, you know, I went through my PDC in Austin I then volunteered my time to teach soils at the PDC in Houston. Um, I've gone through the Soil Food Web School with Elaine Ingham. And so um, I come at it from, you know, the kind of hippie ag side of things. And then it's also like the more conventional training side of things through university and whatever. And I'd say a lot of planners and people in the agency have that experience where they've done their own study and they've also been trained through the more conventional systems. But, you know, NRCS itself has a nine-step planning process that we're supposed to be using on every single site visit that we make. And so it's to identify problems and opportunities, you know, find out what the person's objectives are, what they're trying to do out there, um, you know, do an inventory basically where we're going out and we're looking and seeing like, oh, what does your grass look like? What kind of grass do you have out here? How much forage do you have? You know, what does your soil health look like in your crop field? All that stuff. Uh, we come up with options for the person for like, hey, there's a couple of different ways you could uh, fix on what you called us about initially. You know, like you got all these different options here. The participant then makes a decision and we help them to implement the plan, you know, whether it's technically or financially, and then evaluate the plan afterwards. Right. You implement something and then you say, hey, did this work? Did this not work? How could it have worked better? And we're also evaluating like so many resource concerns while we're out there. And so, you know, just a couple of those are things like air quality, uh, plant condition, livestock production limitation, soil and water quality, all sorts of things out there. And so I really see this as overlapping with, you know, permaculture in that, you know, they're both taking a holistic perspective with permaculture. We're also looking at this broad scale site design, right? And so we're going out and we're analyzing resources yeah. and we're working with the site limitations and we are taking the time to really plan out the system. So it actually works through observation and analysis. Um, and so essentially both NRCS and permaculture are seeking to work with nature rather than against it, you know, by things like you mentioned, you know, putting in some buffers in order to stop the erosion coming off of a field and also, you know, maybe putting a couple vegetative buffers or hedgerows or alley crop systems through that field using cover crops, using no-till and reduced till. Um, you know, it's really looking at not just a single factor, but looking at each factor as a part of the larger system, looking at how those factors and systems interrelate to each other, um, how they benefit each other. And, you know, it's looking also at integrating people with that landscape because we can't have them completely separate if we're still looking to, you know, 
to work out there, to live out there, to play out there, to do whatever we need to do out there. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, you guys, it seems like NRCS is based on your new job and some of the things that I've heard, trying to put more of a focus or more focus, I don't know the right terminology for that, on small far- farms, urban agriculture, things like that. Can you talk about kind of how that's moving and maybe the motivation behind it? Yeah. So, you know, historically, NRCS was kind of geared more towards larger scale, broad acre folks. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that's how our financial assistance programs have been set up in the past, you know, reimbursing people on the per acre basis for planting cover crops, for example. And so, you know, in the past, when smaller acreage folks would come in for assistance, um, you know, they saw the reimbursement for a half acre of cover crops and it wasn't even worth their time to go through the whole process. Mm. Right. If they were getting like 40 bucks back for it. And so yeah. it kind of it kind of drove away a lot of people who could really benefit from the technical and financial resources that we do have available. And so, you know, last year, the national office announced this focus on urban agriculture and which is kind of how my job started up. <laughs> um, and so now we've got over a hundred small scale payment scenarios for our practices, which is amazing. And so it's, it's reimbursing people on the per thousand square feet of cover crops and salt on the per cubic yard of compost on, you know, on this, um, cover crops in Washington last year were reimbursing folks about 90 bucks an acre for historically underserved people. Okay. And so that's on the broad, broad acre, big ag side of things. Yeah. Um, for a thousand square feet of cover crops going in in a small farm system, we were reimbursing 56 bucks. So 56 okay. bucks per thousand square feet versus 90 bucks an acre. You know, that's actually starting to make yeah. Um, and, you know, I'll also say then that the, you know, generally smaller scale folks or urban folks, you know, they haven't, they are not our normal or traditional uh, producer. And yeah. so they generally qualify as historically underserved. And I can also go into that. Um, But there there are two different payment rates for historically underserved or not historically underserved for every single one of our practices. And so if you do qualify as historically underserved, you get a much higher reimbursement rate than the non-historically underserved. And that could be strictly Um, based on the size of my my concern. Right. Right. And so, it, you know, every situation is different and it all depends on what you're doing, how you're doing it, for how we can reimburse you on it. But if you're historically underserved, you're always going to get a higher payment rate than the non-historically underserved folks. Gotcha. Um, Historically underserved folks also have advanced payment options. And so if you're a small scale producer or a... um, or an urban producer who hasn't come in before, you can qualify as historically underserved. And so the advanced payment option is where you're in a contract and you know, for example, let's say you're going to be getting reimbursed $20,000 on a high tunnel, right? You could request half of that money up front in order to actually buy the kit and not have it be such a financial burden. 
you spend the money and then after you get that high tunnel kit up, then we come out, we check it out and we say this looks great and we pay you that second $10,000. And, you know, it it makes it easier on folks to install these practices on their sure. places. Sure, because you're not and, borrowing all the money and some of the money you're borrowing very short term or you're out of pocket very exactly. short term. Absolutely. And so it it is a game changer. And I'd say at least half of the historically underserved folks that I've been working with do use that option. Hmm. Um, so hmm. I guess I'll say what historically underserved is now yeah. that I've kind of. It sounds about like a little language, bit. but I think here it means something a bit different. <laughs> I, or at least it can. Language. Low key. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we have four historically underserved groups kind of that you can check off boxes as on our applications. And so the first one is beginning farmers who've been farming for less than 10 years, okay. which is a lot of small scale and yep. urban folks. Um, limited resource farmers and ranchers who yeah. make less than half of the average income for the county. And I can shoot you a link later for the tool that we use for that. It's two okay. questions okay. so people can see if they qualify as that. Uh, the third category is socially disadvantaged, which is you, you can check off that you're a minority. Okay. And the fourth section or the fourth category is that you're a veteran. And so you're a military vet and you're a beginning farmer. And so you qualify for not only, you know, those higher reimbursement rates yeah. and the advanced payments, but also as we're going through and we are, you know, putting you in different pools of money that you're competing for, the folks who can check off those historically underserved boxes, they have the chance to compete for, you know, let's say the beginning farmer fund pool, yeah. whereas someone who is not historically underserved can only compete for, let's say, your local fund pool for your county or for your team. And so you have more shots at getting funded if you can check off those historically underserved boxes as well. And so I'd say there's a lot of overlap between historically underserved folks and the smaller farmers who haven't been coming in so much in the past. Yeah, I, I love the program for veterans, not just because I'm a veteran myself and I like hearing <laughs> things that apply to me. Um, yeah. Actually, I like it from a historical But that doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, it's, I really like it from a historical perspective. So, I mean, we go back to like the times of the Roman Empire uh, and well before the, the crest and the fall, like the early glory days of the Roman Empire. The soldiers that fought in those campaigns fought at a level of violence that we don't even comprehend today because it was all right. steel on flesh violence. Right. So the guy that comes back from that after like being on 10, 15, 20 years of campaigning is not a guy that you cross and you really need him to go do something productive. You don't really need him hanging out in town. He's probably going to crack somebody's head sooner or later if you do. Right. And that's still kind of crusty old veterans. This, you know, that's kind of the way it is. Um, sure. Nice guys, but they need something to do. And a lot of times they Absolutely. don't have a lot to do. So at, at the time I'm speaking of generally as a, you know, somebody would retire as like a centurion or something like that. Been, been there a while and, and, and done a lot for the empire, right? They would give them a few hectares mm -hmm. to farm. Mm -hmm. And even some of the emperors yeah. that voluntarily like seated the, the throne, so to say, and decided to go off and do other things like, okay, I'm going to turn it over now before I'm not going to wait till somebody kills me or I die. I'm like, I've trained my successor here. I'm done. Went off and farmed, you know? And I, I think, so you're looking yeah. at, you know, a couple thousand years of historical precedent of taking military men and putting them on the farm. 
because I think it's mm-hmm. good for them emotionally. And a lot of those guys, when they come out, they really need something to do. So I think that's an excellent component to that program anyway. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I mean, especially in Texas, we worked with plenty of vets and they all kind of echoed that same idea. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. Um, they were like, you know, I got out. This is what I want to be doing. I need to be working with my hands and making something productive out here. And like farming is the way to do that. Right. If you do it right, it heals the land, but also heals the farmer. Right. You yes. know what I mean? Like that, that, that's, that's, and a lot of those guys, you know, I, I was only in for a few years and I didn't go through any kind of thing that I would call hell or anything like that, but it's still a mental adjustment. And like I went and I spent several months on the Appalachian trail just to reboot my brain. I can only imagine a guy that served, you know, three, four tours in Afghanistan and Iraq and was in 15, 20 years. And then they come get dropped back, dropped back into society, having anything that you can really go to work with it. Like you see the meaningful results of your work at the end of every day. Like that, right. that is what that person needs more than anything else, because we all need to feel useful. And what you have in the military is this, regardless of your opinion of the military, you have this sense of mission and purpose every day. And the mm-hmm. first day that you wake up that you're not in anymore, it's kind of cool. Like I can do whatever I want today. I can grow my hair. Long. <laughs> I can grow a beard. After a few weeks of that, and you're like, I need something to do that yeah. matters. Right. Because you were surrounded Absolutely. by people that were driven by that same mission for all those years. And now they're there and you're home and you're gone. So I, I think that could help with, you know, our large frequency of uh, veteran suicides, et cetera. If, and that's I find a lot for veterans. One of the things and I'm glad you brought that up then, because now we are talking to a lot of them. There's a lot of things available to veterans that veterans are not aware are available to them. I did not right. know that that would help your case, so to say, in starting like a small farm concern to be a veteran through NRCS. I had no idea. Absolutely. And, you know, I'd say because there are so many like government programs out there, whether it's through federal agencies, whether it's through state agencies. And, you know, a lot of them have, you know, their own terms for historically underserved yeah. uh, folks that they help that, you know, either get more points when they're going through the system or whatever. But like, you know, looking at Texas Department of Agriculture, like there's different boxes that you can check on there, too. I think veterans is one of them. I mean, that may be wrong or it may have changed from the last time I looked at it. But yeah. like, um, I'll just, you know, shout this out for Texas since I was there for seven years. The Texas Department of Agriculture has a young farmer grant that's like amazing. And I would oh, encourage really? everybody down there to look at it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's and they qualify young farmers as 45 and younger. So that's applicable to a lot of people. Um, you know, a lot of vets are getting or yeah, a lot of vets are getting out and they're still within that young farmer. Oh, yeah. So oh, easy. 45 in the military. You are old, man. I mean, you are. I know. Old. <laughs> I mean, like first sergeants yeah. are 32 years old sometimes, you know, I mean, like, yeah, you're old if you're 43 totally. or you went in really late. You went in like at 30 or something. Yeah, but I mean, I'd say the vast majority are like younger folks getting out, yeah. right? And so, yeah. like, to to basically like be able to talk to you know whoever, whether it's an NRCS person or a Texas Forest Service person, just using the Texas examples again, um, or you know Extension or Farm Service Agency or whoever, because 
there are all these programs out there. It's just talking to the right person who can aim you in the right direction for these, right, and tell you what all the options are. Or even like the, what is it, National Young Farmer Coalition, they also have a Young Farmer Grant. And so you get more points for being able to check more boxes on there. It's super cool. And on the just going back to the small and urban farms, it would seem to me like that would actually be – it's counterintuitive, but where you could have maximum input, uh, impact more quickly. Because if mm-hmm. I'm trying to – if I have broad-scale 10,000 acres, 5,000 acres of beans and corn, beans and corn, beans and corn, and mm-hmm. I decide I want to start improving my practices – the cost to do that is astronomical. The timeline to do it is astronomical. You talk about cover crop seed and all. We're talking about like dump trucks of seed and what have you. Where if right. I am an urban farm and I'm running, you know, maybe two or three part-time employees, I'm farming right in the city. I've got maybe an acre that I'm farming and maybe, you know, three quarters of that's actually being cultivated. I've got spaces and all. Like I can make that soil optimal in a season or two. And it doesn't really cost that much. And it's not that much labor. It's not that much equipment. Like I can make a massive impact on a relatively small piece of land very, very quickly. You know, I'd agree with that. You know, looking at Broadacre Ag, it's it's overwhelming for the farmer and for other people looking at it. And so usually, you know, if people are looking at things like transitioning to regenerative systems or organic on bigger places, they'll start with a small chunk. Right. Because yeah. you got to bite off a little bit at a time and do it a little bit at a time. So you're not out on either Prove to yourself that it works. Right. Like, you know, exactly. And also, like, it's a lot of work. It's a, literally a lot of labor and time. And, you know, you're taking a chance and you don't know if it'll make it or not. And so you need to make sure that the funds are there for for smaller, like urban farms. Yes, I would say that. Overall, you can definitely like put in the work and get it done faster if you have the funds to do it. Because, I mean, you know, looking at it, people on smaller scale startup urban farms, generally, I'd say they're not working with a crazy amount of capital. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. so, like, even if, you know, it might seem like they don't have to do that much on three quarters of three quarters of an acre, quarter acre, you know, a lot like, man, that cost can add up when you're trucking in good quality compost, when you're integrating these cover crops. Um, But I'd say, yes, on average, it could be done for sure faster. And also, like if you're working on a smaller scale, you know, you're a primary, you know this, we can increase the yield on a smaller footprint by doing things like intercropping and relay cropping and spacing our plants and our crops closer together. So not only are we Im- increasing our yield, but we're also cutting down on things like weeds popping up between our rows because yeah. the sunlight doesn't have access to that soil, right? Mm-hmm. And then we can do things like increase our biodiversity by planting different crops and integrating pollinators and trees and different things out there or living ground cover instead of just like trod on pathways, right? Yeah. And so you can benefit the above ground biodiversity for the wildlife. You can benefit the below ground biodiversity for microbes. You know, there's so many ways to jumpstart your your improvement of your resources on a smaller scale. And that's why I love it, honestly, because there's so many possibilities and you can do so much on a small scale and still get 
a ridiculous amount of yield. I mean, like some of your programs, like I know you guys do grants for high tunnels. So if I have a thousand mm-hmm. acre farm, a high tunnel is useful to me. I can start plants in it and stuff like that. But if I have a half acre urban farm and I put a third of it under high tunnel, I've just extended my growing season and my marketing time by a huge margin, right? Like I can actually now continue to produce at a time of the year when otherwise I wouldn't be able to at all because the ground is covered in snow. I don't care how frost tolerant stuff is. It doesn't grow much when there's two foot of snow on the ground, but with a high tunnel, I can. It also doesn't grow much in the Texas summer. So having the shade cloth that you can run over there is also. Shade cloth fans. Now I can extend because now I got this long growing in Texas, right? And everybody, Everybody dogs on you when they hear, like, oh, man, it's easy. You guys have, like, 300 days growing or whatever. It's like, okay, so you have winter <laughs> for four months, right? We have winter for a month and a half, real winter. But then we have, like, three mm-hmm. months of death summer. It's death oh, summer. My goodness. And all death your stuff summer. that's gotten going really good hits that wall, and it's like, I'm tired, boss. I just don't want to do it anymore. And you just try – if you can, you limp it through – and what I will say is the stuff you limp through for like your your, your mm-hmm. longer duration, you know, continuous harvest crops, about September when the rains come, they go. <laughs> but that piece in the middle <laughs> sucks. It's the Darth of summer. It's so hard. Yeah. It's so hard. And so, you know, that's why so many people take breaks in the summer, right? If they're running yeah. things like CSAs or whatever. Because, I mean, people might take breaks up north in the winter when they got two feet of snow on the ground. But, yeah. oh, my goodness, that does summer. It'll get you. Yeah. And I also wanted to just go back really quickly uh, to what you're mentioning, because I just want to say it's not a grant program. They're reimbursement okay. programs. Just because we don't generally. No, you know, I got you. Grant you comes first. Reimbursement comes second. Okay. Yeah, totally. Totally. And for high tunnels, we do require that folks grow in the ground rather than yep. on tables. Yep. Part of it. Uh, but yeah, like that season extension, it is a, an absolute game changer. I'd also say like people on thousand acre farms, like it benefits them too, for sure. Um, especially like, I mean, you know, up North in the Northeast, like some people are heating their high tunnels too, so that they can get that year round production, Mm -hmm. you know, just keeping it just barely above freezing and everything. But, you know, people are making it work and some people farm exclusively in high tunnels. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty amazing, honestly. I don't know if you've seen what Living Living Red Living Web Farms has done with their tie tunnel operation connected to biochar. So they put in two of the big retort biochar kilns. So they're always running one or the other, right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. they uh, they when they put their high tunnels in about a foot deep, where in the footprint of the high tunnel they buried tubing, mm-hmm. and they're yeah. running hot water through the tubing with a passive recirculation from the heat, the residual heat Mm -hmm. off the biochar and they're in Northern North Carolina. So, you know, it gets cold there. They grow Mm -hmm. straight through with that. They're not heating the air at the all. They're just heating the soil. And so that probably wouldn't have been reimbursable by NRCS that piece, but the tunnel itself and they're growing in ground. So that would all be kosher. 
Totally. Yeah, I've heard of a couple different farms doing stuff like that, you know, generally further up north where, you know, they're putting in these massive tubes like, you know, four feet deep or whatever. But once you get to that depth and you keep that soil warm down there all the time, like, you know, you don't really have to do anything. Right. It's it's going to keep it that constant happy temperature down there for your plants. Yeah. If you can keep your temperature in your high tunnel at 34 degrees at your lowest, it's it's as good as anything because. You're going to get the solar warmth for growth during the day. All you're trying mm-hmm. to do is don't kill me. You know, people are like, right. you don't get that many frosties. Yeah, but you get one, your peppers are dead. You get one, your tomatoes are dead. And like there's certain plants that like one day, one hour below freezing, dead. You know, and being able to have something that doesn't, that's that's a huge advantage. And especially in, you know, certain places as we're getting more and more into climate change, you get those changes real quick and yeah. you're down below freezing. And then the next day you're at 70, 80 degrees again and your plants. That's hard, too. It's so hard on them. It's so stressful on them. Well, there's a lot of plants um, that just triggers bolting, too, so you don't get a harvest. Like I quit. Really? I quit with cilantro right. here. I quit because it's either too cold. Or yeah. You get one warm day and it goes like three leaves on it and then it's got a... <laughs> A bolt stem on it, like I, so I gave up on it. Like, but you know, you don't want that happening. Like, if you are a, a, a farm, especially a small scale farmer, like one of your most high dollar crops would be, you know, quick turn greens, like salad greens and stuff like mm-hmm. that, to restaurants and all. And you don't want that stuff going to bolt. That's that's a massive economic loss. So having climate moderation capability. What's that? I said you can't have it going to bolt. No, because no, you're done. It's yeah. like you can't sell it now, especially, well, cilantro, as soon as it bolts, it tastes like feet. So <laughs> we don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I do think, like, the urban the urban farming, small farming, close to other humans farming is a place where we have one of the biggest potential impacts long term on the macro system, even though it looks like we're talking about the micro, because – you can spin a lot of these up really fast, and, and I'd like to see more people mm-hmm. using programs like NRCS offers. And there's some private sector programs that help with this, too, along the veteran side that can be combined together um, mm. to do yeah. more of this. Because, one, your market is where you are. So everybody's talking about carbon and pollution. Well, when we're trucking stuff from California or flying stuff from California to Dallas, okay, there's more energy in that. Then, then you're ever going to expend on the field yeah. itself. Uh, and that might happen two or three times before Absolutely. it gets to the user. But it's also, it now makes employment by these entrepreneurs for people that work either full or part time a lot more practical. Like if I want to live like in a cool foodie town like Asheville, I'm probably not going to want to drive 50, 60 miles every day to go work on a farm. But I've got right. this massive food community sitting there begging for local produce. And then I've got this workforce yeah. who wants something to do. And you can carve out these, you know, and I've seen the production that people do on a half acre, acre, acre and a half with these intentionally managed it's things. It's unfreaking believable, you know. It, yeah. it really is. It, it is. And it it takes a lot of planning, especially on a small scale. You know, it's not just like you know, your wheat fallow rotation where basically, you know, you know what it is. And yes, it's still an incredible amount of work to, you know, manage that system. But when you're on a small scale, diverse veggie op, for example, you know, you've got to, 
you've got to know your rotations. you got to have everything planned out to the exact day. It's so much work and management. By the way, we can help to pay people through some of our financial assistance programs for things like crop rotation. Just going to put a little nugget in there. But, um, you know, I completely agree. Having these Having these farms in these urban areas where you're around people who are so disconnected from the food system, from how their food is grown, it's amazingly beneficial for them to get that reconnection going when they can see what you're doing. They can come and take a tour on your farm, which, hey, some value added workshops, whatever else. Um, but, you know, to get that reintegration into our communities at large, into the youth. It's so vital um, to employ your local community like we were talking about earlier and reinvigorate it. And also, I'd say, like, you know, that transfer of knowledge is a lot of what we're losing in ag right now, just because, you know, some people aren't wanting to take over the old family farms. And so we do have new farmers coming in, which is amazing and necessary. But, you know, in a lot of ways, we're losing that the cross generational, the cross cultural transfer of knowledge. And so, you know, coming back in and putting these farms in the middle of the cities where you can learn from people who've been doing this for 40 or 50 years. I mean, like, look at Elliot Coleman, right? Like, he has transferred so much knowledge through his books, through everything else out there. And so, but to have access to somebody who can teach you in person, who can tell you the ins and outs of their systems, oh my goodness, what an amazing benefit to the yeah. community and to society at large. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, and also it also makes me think of I, I spoke with Joel Salatin back in 2014 at Permaculture Voices. And I don't remember everything everybody said there, but there's a few things that stick with you. And during his talk, I remember he said, and this, so this is 2014, he said the average farmer in America today is 66 years old. So I can only imagine <laughs> that that number, we haven't had enough new young people coming to drag that average down. That number's probably gone up. Right. And, and so we yeah. need young people coming into farming and, and we don't mm-hmm. have it. And I think a lot of them don't even understand the great life it can be. We, we, we've made it right. where, you know, every farmer is one day away from poverty at all times. And all farms are giant fields out in the middle of nowhere. And don't worry about it because mechanized things are going to do it all. AI and robots will do everything and we won't have to touch it and it doesn't matter. Not the robots. <laughs> you don't want to do that because it's what poor people do or whatever they put. And I think that one of the things that changes that is when people see mm-hmm. what it can be and realize like you could go to work every day in a beautiful place. Like that yeah. alone has, has value. I also see it as something that doesn't exactly have a long line of people wanting to do it right now. So I think it's a great way to get people who don't know what they want to do something to do. And people that need something, like we've mentioned veterans, another place mm-hmm. I'd look at, you know, and I'll you know, be honest, there's people that go to prison. I think if you got out, you somebody made a mistake, you should stay there forever. But there's a lot of people that end up in prison and jail who – They've made mistakes. Sometimes they're in thing, they're in prison or jail for things I wouldn't even send them there for. Um, and they get out, and then they have this giant stigma on them. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for them to get a start. Well, you know, if I'm running a small urban farm, I'm a lot less worried about you stealing money out of the cash register than I am if you worked at a convenience store even, right? Like, there's a certain yeah. mitigation to, like, you're outside. I can see you. I'll give you a shot. Uh, so that, I think there's maybe a lot of opportunity for that. And then that person finds something. But the other side of it is the one thing that nobody can stop you from doing, except maybe in certain things, I guess, 
as, a, as an ex uh, member of the, uh, the incarcerated uh, community would be that you and a lot of them do run your own business. Right. So right. I think that that farming is another place where there's so much opportunity, especially, again, at this like quarter acre urban up to a couple acres uh, urban suburban farming. Right. And, you know, there's a couple of things, you know, feeding into that for why it's easier for yeah. folks to, you know, who small lots are easier for yeah. them to pay for or to rent. Right. Because yeah. it's awfully hard to go get enough money to rent a thousand acre farm. Yeah. Right. But if yeah. you're renting a lot from somebody or, you know, there are a couple of different farms, especially a couple in Canada that I can think of, you know, they are going out and basically um, they're taking urban lots in like Vancouver and they're saying, Hey, can I farm on this lot? You know, I'll use your water, but I'll yeah. be out here doing all the work all the time. And they're piecemealing together all these different lots yeah. in the same neighborhood. And, you know, they're creating their farms that way. And so, no, it's not land that they own. It's land that they like lease or lease for free, whatever system they're trying to put together with these folks. But there are different ways to gain access to land because, oh, my goodness, the price of land now, crazy. It's ridiculous. And, you know, also, it's it's absolutely absurd. And um, I also wanted to say on the prison subject, like, I do think that just like with vets, like giving them something to do is so important. Right. And giving them a purpose and like really giving them training. And there's a couple programs out there um, where especially for incarcerated people, they are putting together, you know, gardening programs and farming programs on site in these prisons to give them training and, you know, train them in growing things and in food safety and give them these skills so that when they do get out and, you know, back and in integrating back into, you know, the larger society, like they have these skills that they can carry forward that they can say, hey, this is what I did. I mm -hmm. have this training and I know that I can do this. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people that if they talk to someone that has a, a, a past record like that, they're a lot more likely to give them their second chance than their first chance afterwards. So if you've worked somewhere for a year, you held a job. It, it, you, you got laid off. You, you just you kind of wore it out and it's not what you want to do anymore. But you did that in between. I'm a lot more likely to go, hey, yeah, here you go. Um, you know, I want to help people, but especially if I'm running a business that has the public involved and whatever, hiring somebody straight out of the clink, it's a risk. And you really got to convince me that you're worth the risk for me to do it. And I want to do it. And there's people that don't. So you really, really got to convince them. Right. So. But if right. you have that interim thing that you did, that transitional thing, I'm a, a lot more likely to give you that opportunity. And I think that's it also starts to give them experience outside of whatever they didn't have before. You know, like right. still because like if you're a small farm, but you're in an urban environment, maybe you are dealing with the folks. So now you have some customer service oriented things or maybe you're selling that's a right. restaurant and you have some like inside sales skills and stuff like that or inventory management, whatever. You have something you can. Because I guess this is a big thing, and, and we haven't said this today, but every time I talk about farming, I try to say this. Farming is a business like any other business, except for the average okay. farmer, it's more. Because the farmer doesn't generally have a facilities manager, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and Karen, Karen handling human resources. And <laughs> it doesn't have like a, a, a true sales department, a market like a, a larger organization has all these departments 
and the farmer is everything from the CEO to the, the, the chief bottle washer, right? You're yeah. everything when you run a farm. And I think that's why a lot of farms fail because people don't understand that. Like I can grow a lot of food. Okay. You got to sell it. <laughs> and you got to sell Absolutely. it before it spoils, right? You know, that's, that's a whole different ball of wax, you know? Yeah. And you know, I, I agree. It's, I think there's a, especially for like small diverse veggie farms or like smaller, like livestock systems, there's a lot of, you know, romanticizing what it is and kind of ignoring the aspects of it. Like, you know, maybe they're not ignoring the hard work, but they are ignoring those things. Like you mentioned, like having to be the business person, maybe you don't want to be a business person. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, it's, you have to be everything to everyone. Um, and, but I'll say there are also programs out there, right, where you can get some free or like fairly cheap training in how to run a farm business. Mm. Right. And so those programs are out there, too. And so it's just a matter of, again, accessing them and knowing about them um, and, you know, taking the time to be like, OK, so this is going to be a couple hours a week. I could be out on the farm. I could be working. I could be making money. I could, you know, be helping the environment. But, you know, I need to do this so that it can be sustainable. Right. Yeah. 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 And I'd, I'd say the ability to move that product is more important. Smaller you are, the more important it is, because the more things you're growing that have are more time sensitive. So if mm -hmm. I'm growing 10,000 acres of corn. Right. And I'm growing shell corn, you know, feed corn. First mm -hmm. of all, I have a market to dump it into. I might not get the price that I want, right. but I have a place for it to go. Mm -hmm. If I have to harvest it three days later, I have to harvest it. It's okay. It's a grain. It's storable. It's durable. If I am trying to move this week's crop of salad greens, I got to move it this week or I'm, I'm, I'm done. That's, totally. that's pig feed at the best at that point, right? It's compost. And yeah. so – Small farmers, this isn't really what you guys do, but one thing they really need to think about when they're here now is, boy, I can get some, I can get some re, you know, reimbursement and I can get some help and some guidance and get a small farm going. You've got to really think about that marketing and sales funnel from the get-go because in the end it's a business and the business only runs if the product hits an end user who pays for it. And, and you Absolutely. That's the, I'm teaching my granddaughter right now kind of the beginnings of setting up a plant propagation business. And she's all oh, yeah. excited because she made a bunch of uh, Jim Westerfield's mint, a uh, rare mint called uh, iced hazelnuts. So she's excited. They all worked. She's got like 50 of them now. Oh, my like, goodness. You got to sell them. You got to yeah. sell What's them. Your you gotta plan? Them What's your plan? Uh, well, she's going to sell some to family and, and, and friends, and uh, we'll mm -hmm. see how that goes. And if, if she does the other things she's supposed to do, we're going to get her little website set up. And, you know, she'll have a That's pretty so good exciting. marketing arm over here, but, like, it's got to be earned. <laughs> It's got to be earned, you know, because now she's got to see it's the same thing. It's a business. Little kid, make some plants, cute. Okay. Um, I told her, I said, well, what are you going to do when somebody orders it? She goes, what do you mean? I said, we we'll put you a website, Tegan's Plants or whatever. And yeah. somebody comes and they order like three of these mints and two goji berries, right? And that's five mm -hmm. plants. What are you going to do? Well, they have to get them. Well, what if they're in New Jersey? <laughs> she says, well, they can come get them. I'm like, they're not going to come get them. Oh, we're going to have to send them to them. Yes. So then you got to be able to read, you got to do write, you got to do math because she's six and right. she's struggling with some of the school subjects. So like, I am so impressed with her. I want wow. money. Well, if you want money, then you have to like, I've Papa has a business. Yeah. I don't have time to run your business. I can help you set it up and guide you, but you have to do all the work. You have to, you're right. going to have to take grandma to take you down to the shipping place. But there's expenses <laughs> in a business. 
And so, you know, we'll give her a lot of lift up, but we'll let her see some of the expense side and all because, you know, right. I think they'll learn more from homeschooling with Papa than they would in, you know, <laughs> Azel Elementary or whatever. Um, I have no doubt. And, side you know, tangent but, there, I guess. Anyway. Oh, no, but I people, think that's a really good point, though, because, yeah. you know, talking about, you know, people who are starting up a, let's say, diverse veggie farm and they're trying to grow 40 different things in their first year. Like it's going to be really hard to have enough of a market for any one of those things to have it be sustainable. And so like, yes, we, especially as permies and also in the world of NRCS, we love polycultures. We want to see maximum diversity out there. Right. But like if you're trying to start up a new farm, maybe focus on five crops at first. Right. And so, you know, focus on doing those five really, really well, make them ones that you want to eat too. (laughs) Also important. And then maybe come together in a cooperative CSA if you can, where other people are growing five other crops Mm -hmm. and, so then you have those 10 crops that you can offer in a CSA, right? And so you can be growing your five crops for the CSA. You can also be growing them for farmer's markets or restaurants or whoever, wholesale if you get to that size. And so, you know, starting out there and then maybe expanding from there to make it, you know, a, a super great business for yourself um, and less complicated overall at first. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I also like the idea of, um, you know, keeping it a little more simple and going into the consignment grocery shop model. I think there's a place in Michigan who's doing the consignment style. And it's, you know, I think it's an amazing system because the producers are getting a higher return on the crops that they're growing. They can charge what they want to charge while the brick and mortar business is essentially providing a grocery store, a market where they have different stands from different farms who are selling into that system. And I think the producers are, you know, going in and restocking their own vegetables in this market. They're getting like 30% more than they would by selling to any other wholesale market. Mm. Right. Mm. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the wholesaler has to get some money so that money can be circumvented and brought back to the producer. If you'll do the, the job of the distributor, basically you, you distribute, yeah. you get the distributor's cut. That's that, that makes a lot of sense. What's the process for people out there that are hearing this? If they want to start working with NRCS and see what NRCS can do for them, how, how do they apply? So the first step would be to call your local NRCS office and I can send you a link that you can include in the notes after this for our service center locator. Like I said, you know, we have a, an office in every county in every state. So you can always have somebody close by your planner will come out and make a field visit with you. Um, And so that's the very first step. We do take applications for our programs year round. Uh, We do have deadlines each year for our applications just so that we can batch them together. Sure. And so our deadlines, every state's going to be different. So you got to call your local office and find out what they are. I always encourage people to come in at least a year ahead of when they're trying to do something because we're the government and we are not the fastest at getting everything done, (laughs) shall we say. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, when folks submit an application, it doesn't mean you're bound to anything. It just means that you're throwing your name in the hat to be considered for funding. Um, And so at this point, you'll also want to contact Farm Service Agency or FSA. Um, because to be enrolled in NRCS programs, you also have to be enrolled with Farm Service Agency. And then, you know, 
NRCS, your local planner, and the person who's applying, they'll work on creating what's called a conservation plan together. And essentially, this is finding the practices that are going to get the producer to where they want to go to, you know, fix their erosion or look at a high tunnel for season extension, right? And so it's it's a conversation back and forth, a continuous conversation between the farmer and between the planner um, because that conservation plan, it it's not just for NRCS. It needs to work for the producer. And so, you know, like permaculture, there's a focus on site-specific design and the unique goals of the individual, too. Um, so you're going to refine the plan for a couple months, going back and forth, and then uh, we will go through and rank applications and allocate money based on criteria like the net benefit of the practices. Um, and like I mentioned, there are those extra funding pools available to historically underserved uh, producers. And, you know, generally it'll be a month or so after we rank folks where we find out if you're approved, generally 50% of our applications do get approved for funding. And that's going to change in every single county, depending on the number of applications rolling mm. in and also how much money goes to that gets, you know, allocated, allocated to them. for it. Okay. And, um, you know, then we'll call you if you end up getting approved for a contract. And if you say yes, then don't do anything yet. Even if we tell you you are pre-approved for funding, don't go out and spend any money. Don't do site prep. Don't order anything. We need to have you sign that contract and have the money uh, basically allocated to you before you can do anything because we can't pay you back on what you did before you signed that contract. I got you. And if you know, your contract didn't get approved for funding that year, then you have the ability to defer that application to the next year okay. um, and get considered again. And, you know, after folks install their practices out there, um, NRCS would make another site visit to make sure that the standard or that the practice meets NRCS standards and specifications. And, you know, we say, yep, this looks great. This is all in court installed according to, you know, what we talked about initially. And then we reimburse a set rate directly to the direct deposit account that you set up with NRCS. And that income is taxable. Okay. All right. So um, let's hit a little bit of Q&A here before I let you go. Mm -hmm. I think there is cool. some redundancy in here. So if they come up, we'll just say we did that already. How many offices are there in the U.S. or is this only a central office? You guys are like everywhere, right? We are everywhere, every single county in every single state. Some offices do cover two counties if they're smaller counties, but you're always within 40-ish miles, I'd say, of um, an office, depending on where you are. Okay. All right. So there's... There's local help available, and, and this person said, are these county offices or state offices? So same question, basically. It's kind of county You want to be right? calling the county office. You want to yeah. be calling your local planner. So VPB says, what NRCS support to transition to organic? Uh, NRCS have a label process. So do you guys get involved with organic labeling at all? Or do you do anything so, that would help? Maybe it's not – just kind of thinking about what we talked about. Maybe it's not for organic, but it could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, 
a couple things. So we do have a new practice called organic management, where okay. essentially it is setting up these management systems. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of a bundle of different practices where it's things like hedgerows and cover crops and crop rotation and livestock rotation and livestock systems, basically to set you up so that you could be certified organic. It's called practice 823 organic management. It's okay. brand new. And so alternatively, you could come through and apply for all those practices separately, um, you know, kind of by themselves if you're just looking to do a little bit at once. Right. And we not an RCS, but we do through Farm Service Agency have reimbursements for organic certification. And so that is well worth talking to your local farm service agency office about because I believe you uh, sign up with them and then you can basically send them your receipts and you can get reimbursed. I don't remember how much you get reimbursed, but I know it's a pretty dang good amount. We don't have a label ourselves for anything, but you know, those costs will help you with the certification. Beginning there. Yeah. yeah. And I think one thing people should take into account, if they are a conventional operation moving to organic, I believe the entire process is like five years. Like before you can, like there's a certain amount of time and maybe that has to do with how long it's like, if it's a new piece of ground, I might be different, but if you've been conventionally mm -hmm. farming, my understanding is even when you completely switch practices, there is some lag between when you've gotten that done. And then when you can start selling as organic, there's something in the middle mm -hmm. there. I believe it's three years. Okay, I'm not an organic years. specialist, but okay. it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Three years. That might make sense too, because I know people that like their whole model of sourcing like grain and stuff so that they can mm -hmm. sell, they, they won't sell under the organic label, but they, they just basically tell their customers what they're doing. They buy yeah. from those people while they're in transition totally. and pay them a little more than they would get because they're selling it conventional because mm -hmm. they know what it is, right? So, like, that's right. why I even know that's a thing. There's some weight. Yeah, and there's a lot of people who do that. Like, they don't bother with organic certification, whether it's because, you know, they don't want to deal with the government or they don't want to have to certify a diverse array of veggies when they're growing, like, a 100 different things. Like, that's yeah. so much paperwork, and I get that. But, yeah. um, you know, if you know your customer and you can show them what you're doing, you can talk to them about what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, that's really what people care about, right? If you can yeah. talk to your farmer, that, no, I, I mean, organic is just a label for yeah. people who are buying it in the grocery store who don't know their farmer, right? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. We we have people occasionally ask if we're organic. None of our customers mm -hmm. care. We're not certified yeah. organic. We just say, come here and see what we do. And right. as soon as they see what we do and they they understand where we source our feed from and whatever, they're like, okay, this is better. And that's what we aim right. for is to be better. But it it, it is a... If you're selling into the commodity space, it's a valid it's an it's if you could have that label, you probably want it because it does forget a premium in 100%. most things. Some things yeah. it's not really the premium that you'd expect. It's I all know. depends, you know. Who else is doing it? How much is available? Because supply and demand, right? How much is available? Some things are really a premium and organic because they're hard to find, and some things are like, well, you want organic spinach in Texas. Yeah, it, it costs the same as conventional. It there's no real difference in cost. Right. 
Josh says one big thing that NRCS can help out with is fencing out water sources like ponds and creeks. Fence has mm-hmm. to be built to their standard, though. So if you're going to build it yourself, be aware of that. And I think that's something people really need to be aware about working with you, though. I think if you're working with an agent, you would know. Like you said, mm-hmm. don't start it. Don't pay for it until you sign the contract. And then do, you can self-install, but it needs mm-hmm. to be done to NRCS specifications. Yeah. And so, you know, going into any practice, like our fence, for example, is a really big one. And so um, – I believe for a while the the spec in Texas was 27 pages and they shortened it to like 19 or something. Um, so there are specifications that you need to meet. Your your local planner will know all of the specifications. And, you know, in some cases, the fences that people want to build, they don't meet our, our standards and specifications. And so we can't help with that. Yeah. But if you do want to build according to our specifications and that, that fence lasts for a long time if you build it according to our specifications. So you're not going to have to go through and rebuild that thing. Um, I think it's well worth it, honestly. And, um, you know, throughout that conversation between you and your planner, as you're going through this process, they will give you the specification. They will talk with you about it. You can show them fence that you've built in the past and say, what part of this would meet? What part of this wouldn't meet? Um, Your planner can be out there as, you're building your fence or as you have your contractor out there. So NRCS can say, Hey, this needs to change a little bit on here. You know, you need to wrap it around another time and get those two wraps on there, whatever it might be, you know? And so it's, it, you're not without the knowledge. You're not without the assistance out there. It's just, it's a partnership between you and NRCS and all these things to get this work done. Continuing on with the fences. Jeff says, can they help me with a fence row of bamboo or something? To help stop pollution from a tire grinding business next door, ground up tire powder blows over the here and covers my plants and chicken water. Help. Uh, I don't know if fencing would be the thing for that, but it would seem like maybe some sort of like very large hedgerow or something could fit under some, some program that would do that. Yeah, one of the purposes for hedgerow is for a pollution and noise and view screen, right? And so, like, that's the human aspect of the practice. And so, um, yeah, I'd say call your local NRCS office. Yeah. It sounds like you're in a fairly urban area right next to this commercial business and we can, let's look at helping you, you know? See, and I think this would be a piece of advice I would give to anybody asking for a consultation with anybody, whether you're paying them, whether it's an NRCS agent, uh, ag extension, whatever. Don't necessarily bring them what you think the solution is and start using because mm-hmm. again, you get in this language thing where you're using different words and different words mean different things. Define the problem that right. you have because they might have a solution or the words to call a solution. And it's the same one you want that mm-hmm. are slightly different, but that when you apply for the funding, you'll be able to access the funding or you may learn something like, you think you need a thing, but a guy's like, you know what? I've dealt with like five of people already that had this problem and this is what we did and this is how it worked. Yeah. And then you know something you didn't because I'll always take free consulting because I'm also free to ignore it. Yeah. I'm not going to turn down information that I don't already have. Absolutely. Because I don't know what I don't know. And that's where having that local planner who has seen – multiple different instances of the same situation on different, you know, properties across the county. They know what's worked and what hasn't worked before. They 
no, I mean, there's a wealth of information there. And I'd also say like, you know, maybe, yeah, you can present like what you think might work, but say, what other ideas do you have here? And keeping that open mind because, yeah. you know, our practice list is crazy long. It's like a hundred pages long. And so we have so many different options for different situations. And so, you know, sure, come in with saying you need a bamboo fence, but, you know, be open to the idea of a hedgerow or a tree yeah. and shrub establishment or whatever else in there to trap that pollution. Might be a hedgerow of bamboo. Exactly. <laughs> right? Bamboo is actually a great um, pollution stopper. It really is. I'll say, it might be yeah, a multi-species thing that would be more effective, right? right? You know? And, and so, you know, having your different canopy layers in there and your different, you know, leaf morphology in there in order to really, really trap that pollution and stop it from coming over. You know, our hedgerows, we do like them to be, you know, more diverse and more native and whatever. Yeah. And so while you while, yes, bamboo, it is a great screen, you know, you could be getting more conservation benefits from getting more different, diverse, you know, above ground plants and then you're also benefiting your underground microbiology as well and so you and know all of it's, a sudden we're it's helping wildlife at the same time we're throwing maybe exactly. a little, some malice species in there with some 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 windfall apples for the deer or whatever totally right you know, and then maybe, we, maybe we qualify for multiple funding options instead of just one because exactly we listen to the person whose job it is to help us right like yeah. And that's the thing. Like NRCS knows what to call it, how to call it to get you the best, you know, chance at getting funded. And, you know, we have different priorities every year for the different practices in every state. And so, you know, those do change around every year. And so I know that the general public, they don't even want to know anything about that because it's a whole lot of government tease. But, you know, it's literally our job to know what's a priority, uh, what's your best shot at getting in. And so, you know, let us work with you. We're not, we're not all the evil feds, you know? Yeah. 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 You guys don't have black helicopters and people roping in the places. <laughs> but you chill out. Guys. Terra Hill Farm says, I, I think the answer to this is no, but maybe because it depends on, on, on how creative you are, right? Are there any mm -hmm. ways NRCS can assist a hydroponic farmer Greenhouses, solar, wind, etc. I would say on the surface, no, but maybe you do other things. I like, you, you know, a high tunnel. You said you have to grow in ground. Is there a percentage of the ground that I have to grow in in there? Could there be some mixed systems? Could so for our high tunnels that we put in, they have to be new and they have to be crops grown in the ground. So we can't get around that one. So right now, hydroponics, we can't really help with. But for things that are happening like outside that tunnel, yeah. let's say you got some uh, erosion from the water that, you know, y'all got four inches the other yeah. day in 24 yeah. hours, right? You well, I did, but people near me did. I got shit. I got nothing. But other really? people got four inches, yeah. yeah. I know in Milam County, it was 3.86, my neighbor told me. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, you're probably going to have some concentrated flow if you don't have some critical area planting down there. You know, you've got your ground cover or if you don't have an infiltration trench or whatever you're looking at. And so things like that we could help out with. Right. But the actual hydroponics itself, probably not. I will say on um, like electricity, 
Um, there is a program through Rural Development, which is another USDA program, called REAP, which is Rural Energy for America program, I want to say. It's some combination of those types of words where they can help out with solar on rural properties. So that could be a cool or a cool program for people to look into. Okay. And moving on, <laughs> this is just Dennis being Dennis. Can you come to put my new homestead in in El Paso? I, <laughs> I don't think they're going to install your homestead. For you. you guys don't do the work either. Um, we don't do the work. But I bet, you, uh, Dennis, if you are creative, Dennis is brand new there, too, so this would be a brand new farm. There's probably mm-hmm. things they could do to help you if you figure out what you want to do and, and, and start working. And I would say that that's kind of an ideal position to be in before you've made any decisions, before you've started anything. Mm-hmm. Like, so that you don't do a thing that you could have done a little bit differently and had some funding for, or you don't do a thing that becomes a type one error. And a type one error, as you know, the day you finished it and you did it, you regret it for the rest of your life that you did it the way that you did. You can't really for put sure. it back. Right? <laughs> so, like, I would get that, a little bit. Yeah. Get that involvement <laughs> in as early as possible, right? Because you guys w- want to work with beginning new farmers. You even have special stuff for them. Absolutely. And, you know, I agree, like, Dennis, call out your local folks from the El Paso office because, you know, I'll say as soon as you own a new property, then we can come out and help you. If you're, like, looking at a property to buy, we can't come out on that because we can't impact any sale of land or whatever. Um, But, you know, as soon as you buy it, like, even if you're not quite sure what you want to do, like, you know, we like to see people kind of knowing the direction that they're going. But, like, for that for an initial thing, if you're like, I really don't know kind of what I have out here, what my potential is. Yeah. Have somebody out there who's seen a million different places and be like, Hey, yeah. I saw this work really well on this same type of slope on the same type yeah. of soil over here. And like, Hey, maybe that's your new business. You know, there's an interesting thing that pops up there. You have to have own the land first, but would it be own or have a lease? Own or lease. Or if I'm leasing, do I need the landowner to sign off on whatever you tell me? So, you know, a lot of folks who come into the office, they do just have a handshake deal. They don't have anything written. Um, And so you can have a lease that way to start off with. But as you go through the NRCS, you know, application process, we do have a form for the landowner to sign to say, hey, it's okay to install this high tunnel out on the place. It's okay to install this hedgerow, this fence, whatever it is, just so that we get the certification that the landowner is all good with this happening out there. Because there's some issues there with like, so you mentioned with the high tunnel, um, Uh if I do that, I have to grow in ground, but there's a time on that, that I have to do that. There's like a, a commitment that I make that I will do those things the way you say to do those things for this much time after I get the money. And if I do that, Mm -hmm. I don't have to give the money back, which is fine. And maybe that's why I was saying like the last question with, can you help? Well, maybe I have this big piece of land and maybe I put this high tunnel in and maybe for five years I grow in ground with it. And then maybe I get another grant to put another one in and I take that one and I start using it for hydro. Like there's always ways to be, but the problem would be if I'm leasing that land and I'm under this obligation NRCS for what Mm -hmm. five years, whatever. Um, and that landowner says, I don't want you here no more. Right. right? So like so, I would want that sign off by the landowner. Well, you better take, you got to do something. You got to figure this out because right. I don't want to give the money back. Yes. Right? 
you know? So, so absolutely. And the lifespan on a high tunnel is four years. And so that's how long that, you know, it needs to stay standing. Most of that is based off of the lifespan of the plastic on there and whatever else. But yes, the lifespan of a high tunnel is four years for us. Yeah. And, you know, I just had somebody come in and sign a contract the other day and they were, they had that exact same situation where they're like, you know, we do have a lease out there, but you know, our landowner, you know, we're not really sure, you know, he, he's the son and he just took over and we're not sure what he's trying to do out there. He's, he's a little, he's a little wily, you know? Yeah. And so, um, they wrote up their own like contract with him to say that if he kicked them off the land or if the lease ended for any reason that he would take over the, um, the maintenance and operation of the high tunnel and that the contract would transfer from their name to his yeah. name. Yeah. And so there are contract transfers that we can do in those types of situations. You know, it's that we have, we've seen every situation, right? And so just talk to your local person about any situation you might have and we can advise you on it. And then Stephanie's asking for beginning farmers. I think she missed the part where we said the, the really beginning farmers, you might get some extra help. Uh, do you have to have a minimum number of years in business or can you be brand new? You can be brand new. Um, and so, you know, you let's say you just bought a property. You just came out of Austin and you had enough with the tech scene and you're going to farm. Right. And so you can absolutely buy that farm, come in and start you know, your operation for certain things. We do require um, a certain level of management out there. Like you have to have a boundary fence and some animals out there in order to apply for a cross fence and for livestock water. Okay. Right. Or uh, to apply for a high tunnel, you have to have grown crops before. Okay. Um, And so, Again, you can ask your local planner on the exact rules for what you want to do for everything. But, you know, if you're coming in and you're trying to, you know, kind of put conservation range planting back on the ground because you're trying to restore this old crop field, like, hey, you know, if it's for wildlife, you may not have to have the same management in a way, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. No, it depends. (laughs) Yeah. Just to give a government answer. We, we just had a guy on not so long ago um, that his core business is bees and helping people yeah. get their land zoned ag so they can save the money on the tax bill. And right. he doesn't just do it with bees. He primarily does it with bees and wildlife mm-hmm. management. And there's a wildlife right. management program in Texas. I think minimum size yeah. on the property is five acres. But there's some pretty simple things you can do. And like four of that five acres goes under the ag exemption thing at that point. Right. Because you still have to keep some with your house that you have to mm-hmm. make conventional on. And that's worked really well for him. So, like, that's different than ag, even though we kind of put the two together. But there are programs right. you guys have that are – and we need that, too. Like, the wildlife management is a, a huge piece of, of what we all should be doing. A hundred percent. And, you know, we do – like you said, we have, you know, restoration of rare and de- – declining habitats we have that as a practice which is amazing we have um all sorts of like tree planting we have different range planting we have different wildlife habitat enhancements you know um coming through and you know shredding to kind of reset your system in different strips right because you're creating more edge habitat that way 
Um, so if you're interested in wildlife, definitely come in and talk to NRCS because like, you know, in Texas, Parks and Wildlife, like absolutely, they've got a great system there too. And Parks and Wildlife, absolutely, they're a wealth of information too. And I think that it depends on which county you're in for how much land you need to have to put into that system, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, it. if you like wildlife, talk to NRCS too. We have wildlife biologists as specialists available to planners, and then, you know, they can come out and make site visits with you too. Yeah, and I think it opens up a lot of places that maybe you wouldn't be able to get access to some of the stuff because when you say wildlife, everybody thinks deer. I mean, that's, that's, you know, right. every, but you know, wa- wa- waterfowl is wild, yeah. right? That's a we huge a issue. Lot of so stuff get, going on with waterfowl. That opens up land that is really not suitable for most farming to some of this, right? Absolutely. But maybe a piece of it is, and you farm that, but you also have this other land that you're a steward of and yeah, like waterfowl, yeah. that's huge. And we need, we need that. That's something that, uh, is you know constantly under pressure. Like people think that it's the duck hunters that put like the wood duck to near extinction. No, it was it was land losses and, and breeding grounds and stuff like that. Um, right, so- and we've got you know practices for wetland restoration and things like that. And I'll say also on you know the habitat fragmentation, quail also comes to mind in Texas, yeah. right? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, people will say, oh, it was, you know, invasive species and ants and whatever. But really, it was habitat fragmentation and everybody putting in Bermuda grass, right? Which little quail can't run through that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is not really a question, but I just thought it was an interesting talking point. Beth, Emily says, a halfway house on a farm. This is when we were talking about uh, veterans, people that are coming out of incarceration, et cetera. I actually think there's a... A, a whole world to be explored there with programs like that. Um, and I, you know, people get this idea of like, take those criminals and make them work on a farm. And then like, I don't mean it that way. I mean it like literally like having that transitional period and, and being able to learn a school skill set. And I think maybe there's a whole plethora of groups of people that would benefit from it. I, I've never seen anybody not have their emotional state improved when they get involved with something like farming, like it always does something to better the mood. Now, you know, you could make somebody just sit there and shovel compost all day long and then it's just work. But when you're actually integrated and involved into things and seeing things actually progress and things, seeing things grow, I think it, it, a lot of people that are in bad places are there. Even if they, you look at them and say they are a legitimate victim their inability to extract themselves from that victim place is because of an emotional state that we need to free them from. And I think farming can be a big part of that. Absolutely. In a whole slew of different ways. Like you said, starting something from a seed and like actually seeing the end product in your hand, like yeah. incredible. Yeah, it's, and, it's you know, I'll life. also say on things like creating life, a hundred percent and caretaking. Yeah. You're being a caretaker out there. You're being a land steward. You're being an animal steward. Um, yeah, it's amazing. And I also wanted to say like on halfway houses, like, you know, I'm sure a halfway house could be a part of an entity that could apply for different NRCS programs, mm. right? It's going to depend on how you want to do it. You know, we're looking at helping out community gardens in the middle of cities, right? And so there's a couple different ways to do it. But like, you know, folks who are looking for that help, like just call NRCS and ask us if what 
what that might look like because we can help out so many different people. You have to meet FSA eligibility requirements, but like, you know, most people can do that. You know, there's like, I think of like all the churches that I've seen put in community gardens and then nobody uses them. And I'm like, the same space can be allocated to a small urban farm. And then you could have basically, you could pay people to do the work that need a job and make that a transitional employment. Right. And the church is providing a form of private welfare now and could have access to mm-hmm. things like this. And even if they didn't get access, I think that would be a better play because I've seen a lot of churches put the community garden in and nobody does anything with it because most people that I know. are going to that church I have I a house I mean, and they I want a garden they have a garden, you know? And I've seen a bunch of them. But my, right. my grandson, think, when he was playing football, there was a church that was we used to use their uh, field for the kids to play flag football on. And they had a beautiful space of community gardens. And it was like late winter. And I thought, well, nobody's using it right now. This will be cool. And then nobody ever came. There was like one person used. And it was like 18 beds. And nobody used them. And I'm like, that's a business. That's 18. And they were big. They were like, how would they say they were like four by 24 foot? That's a business. That's waiting to be a business right there. A hundred percent. And, you know, I know there are examples of people growing and making businesses like super viable on those church types of gardens. I also think it's a matter of, you know, educating, you know, whoever it is, like the the people running that garden at the church and, you know, having them outreach to different people in order to come in and make that a viable space and, you know, community yeah. gathering space and business opportunity for different people. You know, I think it's educating a whole lot of people in the yeah. system to be like, hey, this is possible out here. This is how you're, you can help your community in ways that you didn't even think about before. You know? Yeah. Churches, if you want to do this and let it be a community garden, what she just said, reaching out, because it's probably people not in your church that need the space. One. Two, you want a community gar- gathering area. So, you need a pavilion with shade near the garden so that people want to hang out in the Texas summer in the shade near the garden. And you you, you would do well to put some shade cloth up, too, because just saying it's area you probably could get it done in. It, it, it would make a difference. Um, Jeff says, is growing cut flowers farming in the eyes of NRCS? Maybe. <laughs> Oh, sorry. You just cut out there for a minute, but I caught it. Um, Yes. Cut flower farming is absolutely farming. It's not a bad business. And so, you know, I've worked with – it's a great business. Um, Again, find the market for it, right? Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I've worked with quite a few cut flower farmers now. And, I mean, they're doing amazing things out there. There's some really amazing regenerative models of it, too. Yeah. yeah, and you can do that on a pretty small scale and make some bank, honestly. And there are some really expensive perennial flowers, too. I remember, I don't remember who said it. I don't remember what it was, but there was a presenter at some conference I was at, and he said, how many acres do you think you need to employ? And it was like 18 full-time people. And people started throwing out numbers, you know, 50 acres, 100 acres, 25 acres. And he's like... I know a guy that's running an organic farm. He has 18 full-time people plus himself. 
He makes a great living. He has four acres. And everybody, you could hear everybody, bullshit, bullshit. And then, <laughs> then he was like, okay, this is an organic farm that grows organic roses in upstate mm-hmm. New York. Yeah. Totally. And everybody's like, oh, well, yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah I get, right. And like, so you start realizing, like, and I, I tell people this too. I just had Nick Ferguson on last week about backyard nurseries and stuff. Like, when you want to sell things, you want to sell the things people buy. We have ideology, but sometimes you put it in your back pocket. Um, it doesn't mean it's not important. I keep my wallet there. My wallet's important, yeah. but it is my back pocket, right? So, like, um, when you go to Home Depot or Lowe's or any of these box stores and stand in the nursery on a Saturday in the spring, for every pepper or tomato plant, they'll sell a 1,000 pansies. Right. Or marigold or whatever. So don't be afraid. Like, even if you really want to grow food, it can still be a high profit piece of what you do. And then the two worlds come together, yeah. man. You should see what, what chefs pay for a clamshell of nasturtium blossoms. Right. Oh, like, I know. Big time money. Like, and they're easy to grow. You know, so. You like, know, yeah. So you get the edible flower market in restaurants. Of course, you can do things like farmers markets and also reaching out to florists like your local florist and being like, hey, I'm growing this literally two miles down the road from you. You don't have to bring this in from, you know, Argentina or wherever it's coming from that week. Right. And so, you know, there's examples of that absolutely working. There's also different podcasts you can listen to on the flower growing business and how people are making it work to the best of their ability. Um, and I'll say on the actual ecological side of it, you know, you're getting more biodiversity out there. You can mm-hmm. also provide trap crops for, you know, different pests out there. You can provide food for your pollinators. You know, there's so many benefits to having, I mean, a com- combined operation between flowers and of food, but like flowers themselves, they provide a huge benefit. Mm-hmm. I even grow a lot of food crops that I don't really, I grow more than I need. Because I like mm-hmm. what eats them. Uh, so trap crops are like, I'll do radishes. Like cilantro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, cilantro. Radishes <laughs> are a good trap crop. Because um, it doesn't really, if it's a radish radish, it doesn't really hurt them. The, right. Yeah. But um, I grow fennel. And I actually love to eat fennel. But I grow like, I could never eat all the fennel that I grow. But it's because the black <laughs> swallowtail butterfly, the black and yellow swallowtails come. And they lay these big caterpillars and they munch on it. And so I just, yeah. go ahead, eat it. You yeah. know, because I like having them around, you know, and so there's Return a lot the surplus. of stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a couple more. And I'll let you go. Jeff T, can I get a planner to help even if I'm not after money? Uh, yeah. Right. You guys don't necessarily have to be doing a uh, a reimbursement. You can no. get advice at any time. So that was an easy one. Free technical and then this, assistance. This, I think, has you said it's a government answer, but I call it a permaculture answer. I use it all the time. It depends. Um Grumpy green guy. How long do I need to keep farming after I get funding? I think different things have different commitments because like you said, yes. the, the high tunnels four years, maybe something's a different. Yeah. So like cross fencing is 20 years, right? Okay. That you're supposed to maintain that. Um, but you know, contracts do have expiration dates on them. And so, you know, it's also not like we're going to be, you know, just rolling up daily coming like, by. Hey, click yeah you have a hole in your fence right like exactly (laughs) and so like you know we call before we need to come out like hey can we come out on this day we'd like to take a look at your 
you know, fence, for example. And so is that okay? And you say, yeah, that's okay. It look, uh, of course it's well-maintained. Of course. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. you know, we do have spot checks on our contracts uh, that our state office does in every single state. You know, about 5% of the contracts that we write in any office gets spot checked. They're not spot checking the producer. They're spot checking the planner to make sure that we're doing our jobs correctly. And so, you know, um, again, nobody's ever going to roll up on you unannounced. Um, and so, you know, um, and I'll say again, you know, if you need to sell your farm, you can transfer that contract into the next owner's name and they can take over your contract from you. You know, we've dealt with every situation. We can we can handle anything you got to throw at us if you need to move tomorrow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed talking with you. Um, you mentioned something about a, a link you could shoot over to me. If you shoot that over by email, I'll make sure that it ends up in the show notes or any final words you want to give the audience here. Um, any final words? Um, you know, I, I know it's the tendency of like a lot of people maybe who listen to this show to like, not want to work with the government and want to work outside the system. But I just want to say like these programs and these structures are set up already um, to help people with their farm goals and their conservation goals. And so, you know, I just really want to encourage people to call in and, you know, chat with their local planner and see, you know, if we can offer any free technical advice or if you're wanting to turn any of that technical advice into an application for anything, you know, just give us a holler. Cool. Um, and on that, you know, grumpy green guy had just said, does enough good karma cancel out the bad karma of using stolen money uh, printer funds? And what I said is, well, you decide if you want to get your own money back or not, uh, yeah. if you want to play the game or not. I promise you, if NRCS disappeared tomorrow, not one less dollar would be stolen. Absolutely. If we dissolved NRCS tomorrow, that would not cut federal income tax a penny. They would just <laughs> reallocate it somewhere else, probably within USDA which I guarantee you, however it was, it would be less beneficial when they did so. So it's not about canceling out. It's about, I'm back to pragmatism. I, the life that we have is the life that we have. I, I will never be King mm-hmm. Jack. I don't want to be president. Can't do enough. Make me king. I'll do that for about five years. I can get some shit done, put it the way I want it, and then leave. And then if you screw it up, hey, you had your chance. Um, totally. But I'll give one more, even though I was going to let you go there, because it's a pretty quick one. Any kind of help with digging a well? It depends. Ah. Um, so we can't help out with domestic wells. Um, uh-huh. In certain situations, we might be able to look at something like a livestock well. Yeah. Um, it'll depend on a lot of things. Like, do you already have water out there? Um, how deep is your well? You know, there's a lot of things that we can look at. Um, so I'd say if it's even a question for you, call your local planner get them out there and give them the full rundown of the situation and they'll be able to tell you, you know, it is a possibility or maybe it's not, or do you, you know, is it going to be more beneficial for you to get rural water out there or city water or put in a tank or whatever it may be? Yeah. I was going to say like the the question really is well is one idea. What else can you help me with? What I need Mm -hmm. is water. So water might be some form of right. catch. It might be, like you said, stock tanks and then some way of passive irrigation out of stock tanks. Like there's it's, it's the whole thing. Old thing was you don't want a drill bit. You want a hole. 
The drill bit is right. one way to get a hole, but sometimes a hole is better done with a plasma torch, right? Or totally. a center yeah. punch or a shovel because you actually wanted a hole in the ground, right? Like, so focus <laughs> on what you, what do you want in the end? And then there's multiple means by which to get there. And the, the means you choose may be the one that you can get money to pay for. Or that when you consider all of the ways and you didn't know about two of them, one of the two you didn't know about is better, right? Or more sustainable or like a well, you know what you get when you get a well, you get about every 10 to 15 years, a really expensive bill to replace the pump. Mm -hmm. I know because I have a well, right? Like (laughs) You just did that, didn't you? Yeah. If you have a stock tank with a pipe that you, it's dry fit and you tilt over, that doesn't wear out. And if it does, it's a piece of pipe this long. It's 10 bucks, right? Well, PVC now is probably 20, but yeah, I think uh, <laughs> there are solutions that <laughs> don't have the man. ongoing yeah. cost is kind of what I'm getting at. And sometimes they're better solutions because they don't have, you know, 4,800 freaking dollars every decade or decade and a half. <laughs> you have to pay because it will, not wear, that you're like, bitter. It will yeah. wear out. I'm not bitter. It's just, it came at a time where I was like, I really got a windfall of money this month. I'm going to sock that shit away. And and then you're like, yeah. the well, gods are like, yeah, yeah, okay. You you keep you get to believe that one more day. You turn the water, I go. That's your karma. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Becca, I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for uh, hanging out with us for almost two hours. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for ha- having me. This was awesome. All right, guys, real quick before I go, I just want to let you guys know about our items of the day today. And I said items, yes, because, well, one's an item and one is just a good thing to know. So I happened to find out today that Amazon has a huge sale on DeWalt tools, specifically their cordless power tools. It's not everything, but it's a lot of things. So if you go to the Survival Podcast right now, if you're watching live Right at the top of the stack of uh, articles, you'll see uh, that you can learn more about it. Just click on a link there and uh, you can get over and check everything out. And then next up today, totally unrelated to today's subject, but kind of is because it's about food. Uh, These Cuisinart FP11 uh, food processors are back in stock. These are in the renewed program. And I always tell people to really think about checking the renewed program. The more expensive and higher end the product that you're buying is because the more likely you'll find it or equivalent there because it's a cherry picking program by Amazon. It is not at all what it sounds like. Renewed sounds like somebody bought this thing. It came to their house. It was under warranty. It broke. They sent it back and Amazon had some pocket protector type person with a soldering iron in a room fixing it. It's not a market. It's it's not a program that would make any money. It would be a complete losing program. Renewed is almost exclusively product that was purchased either by mistake or the person decided they didn't want to spend the money and returned. So it's been inspected, checked, make sure all the parts are there, put back on the shelf. It's brand new. And in this case, this product is selling for seventy bucks and retails like one hundred twenty. So it's a big savings. It's a big savings on a product that for all intents and purposes is new. If you are a prepper, a homesteader, et cetera, and you do not have a full-size food processor, you won't know how valuable it is in your kitchen until you get one. Um, I talked in the cooking show this week about making zucchini lasagna using it, et cetera. But there's just so many things, especially you guys that are big on dehydrating and freeze drying. Uh, you're going to sit there and cut up all your zucchinis one at a time. 
you take this thing right here and you just go and it's done and it's all exactly perfect. If you do a lot of family get togethers with salad bars and stuff, it's good for that. Anyway, they're just a pretty cool thing to have. And it is on that renewed program. Also, always check the renewed program. I give you some information on that in the write up today, uh, including with the DeWalt stuff, because any of this DeWalt stuff that's on sale, there's a chance that the same items in the renewed category for even less. And again, it's brand new stuff. Amazon does not have somebody taking a DeWalt drill apart and resoldering stuff back together. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Again, you can always help support us by doing that online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming an MSP member. Again, like I said in my intro, if you're an MSP member and you actually use the discounts, it doesn't cost anything. It actually makes you money. I made on my own program a profit on a standard annual fee of about 13 bucks on my most recent purchase of some CBD stuff and things like that. Uh, so definitely consider becoming a member with that. I'm technically gone now. This will be the last live stream until next week. Uh, I am heading down to Bastrop for Exit and Build tomorrow where I'll be speaking. I hope to see many of you guys there. Tomorrow you'll get a rewind show. I kind of teased it. Uh, but it's about dealing with a government agency you don't want to deal with. And we won't say who it is. I'll tease it a little bit more. But uh, this is a, a show that I've heard a lot of great feedback on. And just recently, it saved somebody a lot of grief. So I shall rewind that one for you on Thursday. Friday, expert counsel Q&A. It's already recorded, so there's no way it doesn't happen. And I will be back with another live stream on Monday. Show you a better way